Hey, welcome to Our Christ. Today I'm joined by Dr. Norman Wiswa. Norman is Gilbert T. Rowe Distinguished Professor of Christian Theology and Senior Fellow at the Kenyon Institute of Ethics at Duke University in the USA. His research and teaching interests are at the intersections of theology, philosophy, ecology, and agrarian and environmental studies. Norman's written several excellent books on these topics, just some of which um, I'd love to touch upon today. So to begin then, Norman, what first prompted your interest in things like creation care and the central concerns that we see in your work? Yeah, so you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I grew up farming in Western Canada. I, um, I, I loved the work of farming and thought for a long time that that's what I was going to do with my life. I loved being outside, loved working with animals, but I was coming into adulthood in the 1980s, which was the time where a lot of farmers were really struggling and you know there were a lot of foreclosures on land a lot of farmer suicides it was just uh, the beginning of what had become a very very difficult economic situation for farmers land prices were so high the pressure to get bigger and bigger and bigger was enormous and at that point i realized that's just not a viable way for me to to live the the, the costs just to enter into the farming space by purchasing land enormous. So I thought, well, I'll be a school teacher. And uh, so I, I went to university, which was not something a lot of folks in my community did, and discovered I loved books, I loved learning, I loved writing. And so I was sort of pushed in the direction of, you know, maybe becoming a professor, which was completely outside my horizon. I had no idea uh, that that would even be a possibility for me. So it was a real thrill that I had these teachers in the history department at the University of Lethbridge, where I went, that, that really were my mentors and my friends, and they, they welcomed me into their, their, their social space, and they, they mentored me, taught, taught me what to do, how to think. And so I, I went off and studied theology for a while, and then did a PhD in philosophy. And during that time, I thought, okay, I'm just going to work on French and German philosophy, because that's what I was very interested in. And so environment and farms had nothing to do with that research, because as you probably know, there are not many farmers that ever show up on a philosophy syllabus or a theology syllabus, <laughs> which of course is a tragedy, I think now looking back, because uh, farmers across the world through cultures have tremendous wisdom to teach us about what it means to be human, what life is like, what our place in the world is, but they've been systematically ignored. And of course, I wasn't aware of any of that until I was teaching at a college in Kentucky and learned about Wendell Berry, who um, I learned about from a friend who, who had told me that, you know, there's a Kentucky writer that you'd be quite interested, I think. And so I looked him up, started reading some of his books, and found that the stories that he was writing about and the themes that he was touching on in his essays were very much a description of my own family's context, this struggle between two radically different ways of farming. And so I, I decided I would write him and see if he would meet with me. And he did. He was very gracious. And I went out to his farm and we had a lovely afternoon. In fact, we had such a good time. We we became friends and started to do some work together while I was in Kentucky. And so really what happened, I think, is that meeting Wendell Berry and reading his work and then him introducing me to a great number of agrarian writers, um, ranging from Jose and Amos and scripture all the way through the ancient Greeks, Hesiod and Virgil, for instance, and then across cultures. Um, that was my second major education to learn these agrarian traditions because what they did is they enabled me to see that we can think about creation, we can think about environmental issues from the perspective of farming, which is a perspective that has not gotten the attention that it deserves. So that, that's really the path that brought me back to these environmental issues, because when I was in graduate school, it wasn't a concern because it wasn't ever taught. Mm, thank you so much, Norman. And um, I'd love to ask you a little bit also about your relationship with Christ and his church. Can you tell us about some of the key events maybe in your yeah. life that helped form you and your love for Christ and his church? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in this farming community. They were mostly refugees or immigrants that came to Western Canada in the 1950s. 
And what was absolutely central to this farming community was the church, because that was the center through which the relationships that helped build a real community, Gemeinschaft is the German word, mm-hmm. where, where people really learned to look out for each other. That's where that was happening. Because as you can imagine, when a big immigrant population moves to an area, they can be bewildered, lost, confused. And so to have this community of support was really, really important. And in this community, in this church that I grew up in, what was really important was the gathering. Uh, I, I wouldn't say the preaching was very good or the music was very good, but what this community did very well is they, they enforced not, that sounds too rough in <laughs> encourage uh, reading the Bible and knowing the Bible, knowing scripture, they ate together a great deal. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that really influenced me because, uh, you know, I didn't read theology because that's not what anybody did. Uh, we just read the Bible and we, we learned to pray and we learned to, to work together as a, a people who were trying to be faithful to God. And, you know, one of the things that I remember you know, is a striking thing, actually, is that in Canada, Thanksgiving is not sort of the myth that we have in American Thanksgiving. Uh, it, it's really much more of a harvest festival that happens in October. And I just remember how in our church around Thanksgiving, farmers would bring their produce and place it at the altar. And there would be a big offering for missions. And and I know that members of this community who were struggling financially because farming is, is not an easy economic path, they would take out loans um, from their bankers so that they could put in a sizable offering for missions. And, and it just reflected to me the kind of faith that people had that God would take care of them, that, that the trust that they, they showed in their farming and in their life together. And I think one of the really important influences in my own life was my grandfather, Wilhelm Repke, who, who um, was a very gentle soul, hardworking man, who I loved working with him because we would talk and he often recited scripture while he was working. I mean, he knew so much of the Psalms by memory. Uh, it was a real formative experience for me. And then you know, what, what really changed was when I went to university and discovered that there were theologians. I didn't know they existed, but I, you know, I encountered <laughs> Dustin and Bonaventure, and I thought I had no idea there was this kind of writing that you could read. And so, um, so that really got me excited about studying theology. And so I did that. I went to Yale Divinity School after my undergraduate degree and, and really loved that time of, of reading and, and learning. And, and then after that, I went and studied a PhD in philosophy. Mm, thank God. And I think um, many of these seeds that you describe were wonderful fruit in your written work. And that's how I've come to know you mainly. So I want to ask you a little bit about that, um, looking at some of your wonderful books. So, so first, if we may, I want to look at The Sacred Life, Humanity's yeah. Place in a Wounded World. So uh, I want to ask first about the title, actually, and uh, also the, the cover, another Van Gogh painting, uh, which I think is yeah. beautiful. And I, I want to ask you what uh, moved you to use that, or was that the publisher's decision? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I write a little bit about Van Gogh in the, in the book itself, in the last chapter, where I'm talking about the essential human task is to be creative. And I think that there's something to be learned from how he understood his own creative task. But I mean, there's so much about Van Gogh's work that attracts me. I mean, on the one hand, what I, what I sense in his, his painting is a desire to capture the vitality of life moving through places and through plants and through creatures. And I think this is something that's so important because one of the, the, the central worries I have that I articulate in the book is that we're living in a world that is so thoroughly disenchanted or desanctified or whatever language you want to use. But what it means is that we've left the world to engineers and economists who are quite happy to commodify everything and then engineer the world into our own liking or what we think will be to our own liking. So we're genetically modifying plants and animals and people and uh, we're vastly re 
uh, designing our landscapes around the world. And of course, what we're now learning through climate change studies is how uh, our economic practices and institutions, our policies are doing so much damage to the whole world. And this is a feature, I think, of the inability of people to cherish life. And, and one of the things that I want to argue is that the cherishing of life goes hand in hand with the understanding that this life is a sacred gift. And it's, it's not to be taken for granted. It's to be honored and respected and cared for and celebrated. And so what I wanted to do in the book was write something that, first of all, would be accessible to people who are not religious folk, so that people who are simply interested in environmental issues or the Anthropocene or climate change would, would see an analysis of how we have come to this moment where we are rendering more and more of this earth uninhabitable for, for people, certainly, but also for many, many species of life. And then I wanted to say, well, what does a logic in which we take the world seriously as a gift from God, as a sacred gift, what difference does that make for the way we think about the world? What difference does it make for the way we think about what a human being is as a creature? Uh, not just a human being, but a creature human being, right? What does that mean when we make that, that qualification? And then the third side of it was, how does our understanding of the world as gift and ourselves as creatures, how does that change the way we think about the nature of human work? Because what's very clear is that in modernity, uh, the, the forms of work that many people are employed in and the context in which they try to do their work are often so degrading of people and places and of the things that get made. And so I wanted to try to give a, a fairly big picture analysis that answers the three big questions that I pose at the start of the book, which is where are we, who are we, and what should we do? Right. I know it's a bit uh, audacious to try to do three huge questions in one book, but the reason I did that is I think it's so important for us to see those three questions together, because if we don't see them together, we're going to invite all sorts of confusion. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you, Norman. And then um, if we might touch upon that, you, you mentioned this kind of Anthropocene epoch that we're living in, and you go through the wounds that it's inflicted in many ways. Right. What, what are then some of the practical problems of this kind of human-centric view, as you've sort of hinted at? And then how does that contrast with the Christian picture and receiving sure. um, creation as a gift, as you suggest? Yeah. I mean, I think in, in one way to frame this, when, when we look at the world as simply a stockpile of natural resources, which is even the language that environmentalists will sometimes use, which to me is, is rather shocking, right? Why would you, as someone who cares deeply about the health and flourishing of the world, why would you submit the world then to this language of natural resources, which has already commodified the world, made us think of it as a massive warehouse where we can just go in there and get whatever we want. What this does, this, this way of thinking about the world is it renders everything every place, every creature, as available to whatever people want to do with it, right? This is a very anthropocentric way of thinking about the world. And it, it doesn't just happen in the sense that we commodify the world and we then acquire the world, whatever we want for ourselves, but we establish human beings then, or at least some human beings, those with the power, um, to assess the value, the meaning, the significance of everything that is. And of course, this is in striking contrast to a Christian way of thinking about everything that is as having its value dependent upon the God who loves it and sustains it in its being, right? And this is something I think my Christian colleagues don't often appreciate. When Christians say, and Jews say, and Muslims say that the world is created by God, and it's created ex nihilo, from nothing. What they mean by that is that God did not have to create anything. God only creates because God loves what God creates. And this is, this, the implications of this, practically speaking, are enormous, because it means you and I, any creature, any place, exists because of the love of God. That's it. It doesn't exist to satisfy God. It doesn't exist to have to appease God. It exists because God loves it. And so this gives to creatures the freedom 
to be themselves, right? It doesn't mean that creatures are a means to some other end. It doesn't mean that creatures are made to be small so that God can be great. God and creatures exist in a non-competitive relationship. And this is so, so important because as, uh, as, as we think about this, the temptation is to say that for us to glorify God, we have to diminish ourselves. And this is the exact opposite, right? When human beings, when creatures, when places that are made by God, loved by God, are healthy and flourish, can live into the fullness of their lives, that's precisely when God is glorified. And I know that sounds rather abstract, but we see this when we look at Jesus' own ministries in the gospel. Because what does he do whenever he sees a creature that is suffering, hungry, sick, lonely, exiled? What He feeds them. He heals them. He exercises them. He befriends them. Because what Jesus most wants is for those that he meets to live into the fullness of their lives. Or as John says, to live abundant life. And, and what Jesus is all about is showing us the many, many ways that the life of creatures can be diminished. And so the ministries of, of reconciliation, the ministries of, of feeding and healing become God's way of saying to us, I want you to experience the fullness of life. Mm -hmm. Glory to God. And um I want to ask you next, if I may, Norman. So before we came online, I was mentioning that I was writing a little bit about liberalism and in a kind of anthropological sense, as you're sort of suggesting, and how that has had disintegrating effects for individuals, the society, and the creation itself. So yeah. I think that comes across powerfully in your work generally. And in this book, you mentioned the transhumanist urge. So some of my friends even would consider themselves transhumanists and we've debated this. Right. I want to ask you what are some of the, the main concerns that you have with this movement and how it makes maybe some of the same mistakes of that kind of older anthropocentric view that we're talking about. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of dimensions to the transhumanist urge that I described. I mean, on the one hand, it can take the more extreme version where we're thinking about redesigning the human body, right? Making it a platform for all sorts of technological hardware um, so that we can, you know, make our bodies stronger, faster, live longer and so forth. And, and the question that I'm posing as the most fundamental question is how transhumanism represents another form of dualism that is rooted in a fundamental discontent with what I call our creaturely condition, right? Human beings are embodied, they're limited, they're fallible, and they're mortal, right? This is how human beings are created by God even, and God says it's good. But what people have decided, some, not all, is that that condition of finitude, of embodiment itself, is the problem that needs to be overcome. And so it's not surprising then that some of the, the leading figures in transhumanist discourses, people like Ray Kurzweil, for instance, they hate their bodies, right? They see their bodies as impediments. And so they're doing whatever they can to prolong their life in the hope that technological devices will be invented so that people can be living on forever. And you know, there's different ways they think about it. One is to try to sort of sequence your brain activity into a software program that could then be uploaded, you know, ad nauseum onto mechanical platforms that could then do whatever. Um, but what this whole sense does is it, it describes this discontent with any kinds of limits to a human life and the desire you know, not just to become God, because some people just aren't interested in the whole category of God, but they want to have something which is a life with no imperfections, or a life that is constantly doing more, having more. And, and this becomes a pretty frightful enterprise, because one of the things that we've learned is, is that limits actually give meaning to what we do in life. A limitless life is also a nonsensible life, because if there is no end to what can be done, how do we know when you're still something that is discrete, identifiable? And, and one of the things I say is that some of these transhumanists want to, through, for instance, artificial intelligence, create a being 
who is no longer a human being because the powers of this new being will be so infinitely greater than what we now have. And I, and I asked the question, why are we so unhappy with ourselves that we want to create a being who is unrecognizable to ourselves even? Mm -hmm. um, it's a deeply disturbing trend. And it's also, I think, rooted in a fundamental deception, which is to say that human beings are not embodied beings, right? What I wanted to argue is that if we truly believe that we are embodied beings, then even the venture that we're seeing proposed by very wealthy, even ostensibly smart people like Elon Musk or previously Stephen Hawking, who say that human beings can exit planet Earth and go live somewhere else, it's an utter fantasy because our bodies only make sense, can only exist in terms of our association, our relationships with billions of organisms, tiny and large, and all of the ecosystem processes that only happen here because our bodies have developed in terms of the histories of these many, many organisms and ecological processes working together. And so to think that we could just extricate a human being out of that eco-social context and then go somewhere else that is completely unfriendly to our own flourishing is just a fantasy. And I argue that instead of this transhumanist urge, what we need to do is we need to figure out how to come to peace with our embodiment and figure out how do we transform our affections, our sympathies, so that they become ones imbued with love so that we can make this world more habitable, more peaceful, more harmonious. And then many of the reasons we would otherwise have to want to go to some other planet, for instance, would simply disappear. And, and I argue that that is in fact what the position of scripture is, right? That the, the journey of the Christian is not from earth to heaven somewhere else, but from creation to new creation, which is creation transformed and healed of all of its violence and suffering. And heaven is the place where it is only the love of God is the power moving through everything, everyone, every place. And that means then that heaven is not about our transportation to some other location somewhere else in the universe, but is about the transformation of our lives and this earth so that God is present everywhere. And I think that's, that's a, a vision that is much more amenable to the way we think about scripture. Mm, amen. And uh, I think what comes across in your work too is how this scales, as it were, societally. So we see these individuals, but we see this impact on this kind of societal level generally. I want to ask you a little bit about that and why it's vital to recognize our kind of meshwork world, as you refer to it, and tailor our society to yes. this, rather than this kind of crude image that many of us have and it's maybe been hoisted upon us that um, we can dominate nature through this right. kind of physicalist model. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is that we've sort of gotten used to this way of thinking about ourselves as first and foremost individuals. And, you know, this, we have to say, is in striking contrast to the way many, many cultures historically have thought about what it means to be a human being, right? In the ancient Greek world, the human being is a social political being. If we look at scripture, it's always that you are a member of a community or a family or a clan, right? And we think about African philosophy, the concept of Ubuntu, right? That when we have a person, they're a member of a village or a community that makes their living possible, so the idea that human beings are individuals that can stand alone and stand apart from others, stand apart from their world, and then engage it on whatever terms they want, that's a new invention. And it's taken a very, very sinister form, I would say, in the, the growth of neoliberalism, right, that we see especially well described by people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, right, who were intent on dismantling all the infrastructures, the social, economic, political infrastructure that help people understand that communities, right, are the places where people discover themselves, they're flourishing. And what neoliberalism says is that your life, it's all on you. If you succeed, it's all on you. If you fail, it's all on you. And what we're seeing is that this separation of people from others, this 
almost necessary loneliness that it has spawned in the lives of so many people is it's created all sorts of mental health issues of stress and anxiety. And we're reeling from it. And we have to, I think, come to an appreciation about how this neoliberal philosophy goes hand in hand with the idea that we can then do with our communities, with our neighborhoods, with our, our farmlands, you name it, we can do with them whatever we want to make our own personal individual success happen. And this is a deeply, deeply destructive philosophy. And, and my worry is, is that a number of Christian people have imbibed neoliberal thinking as if it somehow represents a scriptural view of what a human being is, when in fact neoliberalism, I would say, is a profoundly anti-Christian way of thinking about the world. Because when you read the Gospels and when you read Paul's letters, for instance, it's very clear that a human life only makes sense in terms of the community, the church, the ecclesia, right, in which you become a member with others in the life of serving each other, taking care of each other, right, welcoming, feeding each other. And this becomes a witness to the love of God in the world, something much, much more difficult to do if you're trying to live a solitary, lonely life. Mm, thank you for that, Norman. And um, then in the third part of the book, you ask and answer why anything would be called or should be called sacred. Can you share a little bit about that and how we might act more reverentially in contrast to that kind of um, mythos that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, the basic question is whether or not it's okay to violate life, right? That's the basic question. And what we have seen historically, and this has taken place over centuries, really, is that the weight of the great philosophers, the weight of the great economists, is to say that the concept of violation doesn't even obtain, right? So think about Descartes already in the 16th century, 17th centuries, was arguing for this thing called vivisection, which means you can do an autopsy on a living animal because it's just a machine. And this kind of thinking, uh, you know, translated to French physiocrats like Julien Offre de la Maitre, who said that the human body is just a machine and you can modify it, engineer it as you'd like. And he was saying all this long before we knew anything about genetics, for instance. So we've got a long tradition of thinking about this world and the beings within it as being nothing more than machines that are susceptible to endless manipulation, acquisition, and so forth. This is a way of thinking in which violation becomes impossible because if I were to say, take a hammer to your cell phone or your laptop or whatever, you would be upset, but you would not be upset because I violated the cell phone. You would be upset because I violated your interest in the cell phone, right? You've been hurt because we can't think about machines as having sanctity, right? They're just pieces of utility that serve the aims that we give to them because their value is not inherent to them. So this is a way of talking about a vastly de-sanctified world or a, you know, another way to put it is a highly secularized world or a disenchanted world. And when you get to this way of thinking, it doesn't take very long before you get the argument that we can do to people's bodies whatever we want. And so we have histories of violence against bodies and the mistreatment of human bodies. And, and I think this is often the place where people can see, wait a minute, there's something wrong about this. When, when you find yourself being treated like a machine or just a number or a unit of production or a unit of consumption, you sense that, you sense that there's something important about you that's being violated. And the way Christians and others will talk about this is to say that who you are as a living being created is precious. You have value in and of yourself. It's not dependent upon what somebody else says. It's not dependent on what somebody else does. You have value in and of yourself. And the most important thing for us to learn to do is to figure out how to respect your value. And this is what I would call respecting the sanctity of creatures, right? The sacredness of places. 
To say that a place is sacred, to say that a creature is sacred, is not to say that it's divine, because I'm not trying to suggest that any human being is divine or any place is divine. But it is to say that they exist only because the divine being wants them to exist and loves their existence. And so the value of creatures, the value of places, is a feature of their God-givenness. And that's what makes them sacred. And when we learn to see the world as sacred, when we learn to see places and fellow creatures and fellow human beings as sacred, we have to treat them different. And one of the ways that we do this most basically is when we encounter somebody and the first thing that comes into our minds is to say, there's a child of God. How should I treat this child of God? Because they're not just a worker. They're not just a piece of utility that I can bend to meet whatever purpose I have for it. I have to respect them. I have to honor them. I have to even cherish them because that's how they're perceived by God. That's how God relates to them in the modes of cherishing and delight. And so the sacred becomes a way of putting a hedge on this sort of endless desire to turn everything into a means to our own satisfaction. Mm, excellent. Thank you, Norman. Another wonderful facet of your work that I appreciate is the emphasis you place on um, things like creativity properly understood. I want to ask you a little bit about that and what is the proper place of creativity in this kind of sacred life and how does that maybe contrast with, say, the, the older, cruder, maybe like artsy, self-expressing hey. cult of originality. That oh, was, yeah. It often seems to uh, result in a kind of self-flattery and also yeah. me against right. the rest. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's, there's, there's several dimensions to the creativity and the context in which I'm trying to describe it. On the one hand, there is what you just described, the idea that the creative people are the solitary, tortured geniuses, you know, the people who we put up on our walls in museums and art galleries, for instance. And, and we think, therefore, that, that creativity is for the fine artist. And it's done in, you know, usually the conditions of great deprivation and poverty. And, and, and it's not something that ordinary people do. And I want to push back against that because what we know historically is that communities of people were always doing creative work, right? That was a central feature of their lives. They were involved in the building of where they lived, the building of where they worked. They were involved in the making of the things that they needed, right? They were constantly building their environments, whether as farmers or what have you. And so the cultures of the world historically have never made this distinction between the ordinary worker and the artisan. Workers were artisans, right? And it's, it's, it's fascinating to think that as the industrial revolution came and we get the advent of something called factory work, one of the things that people were so resistant about in that moment was that factory work diminished the skill of workers who traditionally in their communities would have had all sorts of opportunity to be creative. So th this idea that creativity belongs to a very select few just needs to be banished. Now the question is, well, why does creativity even matter? Well, this is a very, very important piece of the puzzle because when you become creative, when you get involved in the making of things, and I mean all sorts of things, not just painting. I mean, when you, when you build a garden shed, when you make a meal, when you repair a shoe or, you know, any of the number of things that involve you developing practical skills in the making of things or the repair of things, right? What we're talking about is human beings come into a kind of intimate touch or contact with the world around us. And this is important to stress because in our sort of contemporary global society, what we're seeing is that so many people have been reduced to spectators of life and the shoppers of life. And what I mean by that is that people are not encouraged to make many things any longer. They just buy them or they're encouraged to watch things, right? We're all sort of tied to screens to varying degrees, which means we look at the world rather than get involved in its own development, its own uh, proceeding. And so I wanna describe creativity very generally 
as humanity's participation in the unfolding of the world itself. Because when you start to make things, you suddenly have to know a lot of things, right? So that, you know, if I want to make a meal from scratch, I have to know a lot about the various ingredients that I'm going to be using. I have to know about how certain ingredients relate to each other. And I have to know what makes for good taste, what makes for good nutrition, right? It, it, it's all very good for me to want to make a cake and think, well, the recipe calls for four eggs, but what if I put in 15 because I like eggs? Well, you're not going to have a dough <laughs> because what you'll have is an omelet instead. So, you, you know, you have, to, you have to learn about the world and how the world works. And when we come to know something about the world, we also come to understand something about its limits, its vulnerability, its fragility, but also its potential, right? Because who would have thought that a few grains of wheat, for instance, when worked with in a certain manner, can produce bread, right? It's just wonderful to think that apples can make apple pie or apple cider, or you name it. There's all these different ways that the world opens up to us its potential and its limits. And when we become involved in the world by making a home for ourselves and for each other, we come to an understanding of what I call the gracious character of our world. And, and that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize and don't even understand that they're missing it. Because I think so many people don't just feel lonely vis-a-vis -vis other people. They feel lonely in the world. They don't sense how the world is a hospitable place and welcomes our human existence within it. But to know that, you have to engage the world through the work of making, through the work of sustaining and building. Um, that's how we come to see how we fit within the world or sometimes don't fit when we do damage. Mm, excellent. Thank you, Norman. And uh, as you're sort of suggesting there, that wonderful example of food, there is a more theological way to understand our relationship with food and food culture and the implications that we have with our food rather than this kind of consu uh, pure consumer lifestyle. So I'd love to ask you a little bit, if I may, about your other book, which is one of my favorite books ever, actually, Food and Faith, The Theology of Eating. Uh, which I yeah. read in the first edition, but I understand there's been a second edition with 25% more content. Yeah, yeah, there's a, a fair bit more. I put in three new chapters, I think it was, yeah. Fantastic. So I must read that in the second edition. But uh, I want to ask you then, building upon what you're saying, what are some of the ways that we can come to think more distinctly theologically and even as Christians about food specifically, about yeah. food and how that contrasts with what you're describing, this kind of utilitarian mindset sure. that we imparted? Yeah. Well, there's just so many things to say. I think I'll, I'll start <laughs> by, by acknowledging that when I told friends that I was writing a book on food, they all said, why? <laughs> there's nothing of theological interest there except food hunger, right? Which is, of course, a major concern and an important issue. And then maybe if you're on the fringe, you worry about vegetarianism. But so many of, of the Christian folk that I knew were deeply puzzled and thought, okay, you're just an <laughs> academic who has nothing better to do. So you're going to write about food. But this is a tragedy because there's so much about food that is, is absolutely crucial to our existence, right? And we know this. If you think about it, if you don't eat, you die, right? So eating gets to the core of who we are as creatures who need, right? And if we don't understand our own need of others in all sorts of ways in the forms of social fellowship but also in the in the forms of, of, of a, a ecological geo biochemical creatures that can sustain our bodies we've just misunderstood who we are right and this idea this neoliberal idea that we are individuals it immediately falls to pieces as soon as you pay attention to the fact that human beings have to eat we are not invulnerable we are not the kinds of self-standing, self-separating kinds of being. Our mouths, our noses, our belly buttons, they're all physical markers of the fact that we are tuned for relationship. So that's one thing to say. A second thing is to say that when we think about food, we have been trained 
to believe that food just is a commodity, right? Because everyone goes to a grocery store or now more recently, they go to a website and they click the items they want and they show up at their door and it's all very convenient. It's all very easy. It's all very, very ignorant because what we don't appreciate is that for us to eat even a vegetarian diet, others have to die. Plants die, animals die, insects die. And the big question is, how do we make ourselves worthy of the death of another? And then more deeply, why does God create a world in which every creature that lives has to eat to sustain its own being? Right? Eating is not a result of the fall, as some people might like to think. God creates creatures who are finite, who are needy. And one of the most basic ways that's communicated is that God creates human beings and creatures that eat. So we have to then ask this other question, well, what is food then if it's not a commodity that is just susceptible to the logics of, of what maximization of yield, you know, efficiency of production, uh, maximization of profits and so forth? Well, I like to say that food is not a commodity. Food is God's love made delicious and nutritious. And when I say that to people, they invariably smile because they think, oh, that's just a cute way of speaking. But the fact is that when we say that food is God's love made delicious and nutritious, I'm actually just working on something that people understand most basically if they've ever been invited to somebody's home to come and eat. Right? If I invite you over to my house for a meal, the minute you walk in the door and you smell the food and you sit down at the table and the food comes to you, what is that presentation but a declaration of my love for you? I, I want to welcome you into my home. I want you to feel at ease. I want you to be nurtured. I want to share life with you. Those are all profound declarations of love. And I think that's what we need to understand when we think about God's creation of a world in which there is food, right? God says in the eating that we do, I love you. I'm caring for your needs. And this is one of the reasons why God is so angered when you read scripture with people who are hungry, right? God despises the economies that result in people going hungry because food is not ever to be used as a weapon to diminish the lives of people. Food is always a gracious gift from God that communicates God's love for us. And the amazing thing is, is that God creates a world that can taste so good, <laughs> right? We could imagine that, first of all, God could have created a world in which no creature eats. That would have been a lot neater and tidier. Or we could have imagined God creating a world in which there's not much flavor, you know, just think it could be a machine that just takes in fuel and the machine isn't happy about the fuel. There's nothing special about the fuel. It just makes it work. Well, why isn't food like that? Well, it's because God wants the food that we eat and the kinds of encounters we have to be the occasion for our own happiness, our own health, our well-being. And this isn't just happening at the physiological level. It's also happening at the social level, because one of the most important things about the eating we do is it's the way we build relationships with each other, right? We eat together, right? Historically, that's what people have done. And, and one of the great tragedies, I think, of our modern or postmodern cultures is how many people eat alone. They eat on the run. They eat mindlessly. And when they do that, of course, they're prevented from sharing life with each other, and, and one of the reasons that uh, I think food is such a wonderful entry into our thinking about some of the most basic questions is it reinforces the sense that, you know, food is our entry into fellowship, fellowship with other people, but also fellowship with creatures, fellowship with the land. And, and again, this is something that would have been known to a lot of people in traditional societies because they would have acknowledged that the land, that animals, even plants are kin they're part of a community of life. And one of the things that we've done that has been so damaging to us is that we've convinced ourselves that human beings are not kin with anything other than maybe a few of our friends. 
or family members. And this too st stands in striking contrast with scripture where we find God not just having a relationship with people, but having a relationship with, with plants, with animals, with the soil itself that, that can be used as a witness testifying to the human action of, of violence or that, that God will receive the praise of, of forests, right? I mean, these are all images that communicate so clearly how the covenant that God establishes in scripture is not just with people, but with the whole of creation. And I think eating becomes one of our ways to come into that understanding. Mm, excellent. Thank you, Norman. And um, another wonderful, really literally down to earth example that you use is gardening. So I want to ask you a little bit about that and the importance of garden understood at kind of multiple levels again and how that um, yeah. works yeah. in a fractal pattern. Right. So the first thing to say is that God gardening is hard. Okay. <laughs> Now, you have to know so much. And what you need to know, first and foremost, is your own ignorance. You have to know your own impatience. You have to know your own impotence, right? These all become ways, again, of helping us come to an understanding of our own creatureliness, our own finitude. And, and what I often do, especially with, with, with church folks, is I say, we have to go to one of the earliest scripture stories, which is the Garden of Eden story in Genesis 2, where we are given a description of the human being as being, what, breathed out of the soil, right? God is in the garden. God is the first gardener, holding the soil in God's hands, breathing into that soil to produce the first human being, the Adam. And this human being is Adama, soil, lift it into the form that is, you know, specific to you and I and, and other human beings. And what's interesting is that in that story, we're also told that plants and animals are God breathing into the soil, bringing them to life. And then what happens, which is just so striking, and it happens before the fall, which is important to say, is that God takes this first human being puts this Adam in the garden and says, now you take care of it, tend and keep it. And, you know, I've thought about that for a very, very long time. And I've wondered, well, why, why do that? And I know that for a lot of people, they think it's a punishment, but it's not a punishment because if God is the first gardener who relates to creation as a gardener relates to a garden, which is to say with vigilance and care and nurture and celebration, that says a lot to us about what God does. And so we need to then learn to garden like God does, which is in the modes of patience, nurture, care, celebration. And more than that, it's that we need to discover in the work of gardening itself, the difficulty of gardening. Because imagine the difficulty God has with us trying to care for us and how we can be belligerent and we can make major, major mistakes and be, you know, just the people who God does not want us to be. But yet God doesn't give up. God still works constantly, is faithful, as, as Hosea says, to us even in our waywardness and infidelity. And so what we're asked to do in this work of gardening is we're asked to come alongside God in this mode of nurture, protection, cultivation, so that something beautiful can grow together, which is the beauty of flowers, the beauty of food that nurtures. And, and when we do that well, right, what we're discovering is our fundamental identity as soil birthed and soil bound creatures, but also our vocation as caretakers of the land. And when we do those two things, really everything else will fall into place, right? It's striking that there's a kind of simplicity in that command to go and work in the garden. Because if we nurture the life that nurtures us, if we nurture the places that nurture us, we will have a beautiful world. We will have a healthy world. We will have a flourishing world. And so the fact that so many people have walked away from gardening, often for good reasons, or have walked away from farming, is an indication that we do not have economies 
that are really set up in which the work of gardening, that kind of care, this detailed attention and patience can be realized and exercised. Mm. Most important. Thanks, Norman. And um, just the, the last sort of question I want to ask you about this book as we uh, kind of close our time is about Christ, because true to the scriptures, you show that all of these things, these themes that you're discussing from the Old Testament and so on, uh, are fulfilled in Christ, and he transfigures all these wonderful gifts. Yeah. So I want to ask you a bit about that, the importance of the Eucharist, and even um, kind of eating in the new heaven and the new earth, as you sort of conclude the book. Could you tell yeah. us about that and how that uh, community yeah. is consummated in Christ? Yeah, sure. Well, so many things. First of all, remember that Jesus is confused with the gardener at the resurrection scene, right? That's that's a little bit indicative. I mean, nothing in the in the scriptures is accidental. I think it's important to remember. So there's that little point. But I think yes, it's it's absolutely essential that we we put Jesus in this because people will often say to me, "Well, you're talking about Old Testament text," and I want to say, "No, no, 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 no," because one of the most striking things about the New Testament and the New Testament community is that when they were trying to think about who Jesus is, what he means, why he matters, they immediately described him in terms of his cosmic significance, right? I was taught as a youngster that Jesus is my savior. I was never taught that Jesus is my creator. And yet that's exactly how the New Testament presents Jesus, right? Think about the beginning of John's gospel, Right? Jesus is the eternal word through whom all things come to be, and without him not one thing came into being. Or think about the Christ hymn in Colossians, which is what scholars believe to be one of the earliest summary formulations for who Jesus is. And, and there we're told that Jesus is the icon of God, right? the one through whom all things in heaven and on earth come to be, and through, all, through him all things hold together. And then we think about the earliest description of the creeds, right, that describe Jesus as the one through whom creatures, right, from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Creation is a triune action. So that just needs to be stated right up front. That, now, I know that that sounds terribly abstract because we want to think that creation is about the beginning of things, and Jesus, he's living only 2,000 years ago, so Jesus wasn't at the beginning of things, so we can't say that Jesus is the creator. Well, that's already a mistake because when we talk about creation and the creator, we're not talking about, you know, what is that chronological starting point because the creator is the one who establishes time, not the start of time, but establishes time itself. And so what we need to think about when we think about creation is we need to think about what is the meaning and significance and the purpose of things that are. And what we do when we talk, as Christians do, and we say that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, what we're saying is that in his body, in the way he moved on earth amongst others, the ministries that he performed, they are, as Hebrews says, the exact imprint of God the Father. So if you want to know what the power of God is that creates the world, look at the power that's revealed in the life of Jesus. And what kind of power is that? It's the power that heals. It's the power that feeds. It's the power that liberates. And so when we think about God's creative power, and then we think about Jesus making all of this material and practical and embodied, then it becomes very clear that the job of human beings who follow this Jesus is that we're supposed to participate in his ministerial ways with others. Right? And that means then that we have to learn to be friendly. We have to learn how to be healing. We have to learn how to be nurturing. We have to learn how to be reconciling because these are all the modes of life that Jesus made so evident. And not accidentally, I wouldn't say, when Christians try to de develop the ritual practice around which this was going to happen, they went to the Eucharist, right? They, they said, we're going to have a meal that we're going to eat in memory of Jesus. And I know that you can just reduce that to a kind of ritual performance, but what is very clear is that the Acts community did this, right? We are told that upon receiving the Holy Spirit, they lived together, they ate together, they sang together. And then the amazing thing is that when they did all this in memory of Jesus, 
there wasn't a single one among them who had need, right? They took care of each other. And in the taking care of each other, they were a witness to the world around them of what the love of God looks like when it becomes economic and not merely pious. And this brought about a transformation of the ancient world because Christianity, as we knew, as we know, just grew and grew and grew and more people wanted to be a part of this loving way of being. And if it's the case that, you know, the eating together, right, creates this loving way of being, I would argue it makes perfect sense to say that this would carry on in heaven as well. Because when we're talking about heaven, we're not talking about disembodied souls floating around in the ether, because as the Christian creeds will say, it's the resurrection of the body, not the immortality of the soul that Christians believe. And so if our bodies are resurrected and we see that eating can be one of the ways in which we participate in and witness to the love of God in the world, we should expect that there will be eating in heaven, which makes me glad because I love to eat. But you know, of course, I, I don't know anything about the mechanics of what this is going to look like. I don't know anybody does. But um, the reason that's important to talk about something like eating in heaven is because we need to resist as much as we can the idea that bodies are bad, that bodies need to be left behind because bodies are never bad right? Bodies are beloved by God. They're the temple of God. The only thing that's bad about bodies is when those bodies get violated. But then the badness is not the body itself. It's the violation of the body. That's the bad thing. Mm, amen. And um, just to close today, I appreciate that so much. Thank you, Norman, I should say. So just to close today, I want to ask you about your uh, forthcoming work. Is there anything you want to tell us about this? I'm looking especially forward to Agrarian Spirit, Cultivated Yeah, Faith that's a community. book that's coming out this, this <laughs> summer. Um, it's where I, I look at how agrarian ways of being practices help us rethink some central spiritual practices. And I, I work on six in particular about learning to pray, learning to see, learning, uh, let's see, learning hum humility, learning generosity, learning hope. Did I forget one? I'm not certain now. Uh, and, and try to show what they, they, what they mean when we understand them in an agrarian sort of way. Because as I argue, scripture is an agrarian book and the way it thinks about God is as an agrarian God. And so I, I first take some time to talk about why I think that matters. And then, then I sort of flesh out these different spiritual practices. So that'll come out this summer. And then in this period now, I'm working on a book on hope, trying to describe what hope looks like when we're in a world where so many people are concerned about the future of this planet and the future of our communities that are seemingly systematically under assault. And uh, so talking about hope, I think, becomes really important. Mm, I'm in and um, I most look forward to these and I'm grateful for your witness, Norman. Uh, just then, where can viewers or listeners find out more about you and your work then? Going sure, forward? yeah, I have, I have a website. It's simply normanwersba.com and, you know, that'll list, you know, books and you can get access to articles I've done there and also podcasts I've done. So uh, eventually this podcast should show up there. That would be really great. And, and yeah, that, that's a way for people to also Every once in a while, I'll put up there if I'm going to be speaking somewhere. So that might be of interest to folks. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Norman, and God bless you. Thanks so much, Mark. Good to be with you. I'm going there. Nobody can stop me. Ooh, I'm going there. Don't you want to go too? I'm going there.